Shalom, Salam, and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shael ben Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 7, The Natufians. Today we will look at the first genuinely agricultural culture in the Levant, and probably on Earth. This is a pivotal moment in the history of the region and humanity. So before we look at the Natufians, let's take a step back and look at the agricultural revolution as a whole. Due to its massive significance in human history, several theories regarding our turn to agriculture exist. Many of them center on the need to feed increasingly large populations due to the warming of conditions following the warming of the global climate in the Holocene phenomenon 11,650 years before the present. In the Paleolithic era, humans were far more vulnerable to the elements of nature than they are today. That is the crucial thing to remember in understanding the background and motivations of agriculture. Many of our ancestors and cousins had gone extinct because of their inability to adapt to environmental changes. Yet we are still around when they aren't. Why? Because we made dramatic changes to our lifestyles when necessary. So one theory of agriculture is called the Oasis Hypothesis. According to that, humans gathered in drying lakes when the earth was heating. The drying lakes tended to be solid sites for early agricultural development. Notable examples of that include the Nile, the Euphrates, and the Yangtze River, the three places most people identify with the emergence of agriculture and civilization. That, coupled with the need to feed an increased population, may have led to the development of agricultural techniques. This makes sense. After all, the foraging lifestyle is based on mobility, and nothing slows you down like the incessant crying of an infant and the nagging of a child. Are we foraging yet? Are we foraging yet? Therefore, hunter-gatherers often practiced forms of birth control, abortion, and even infanticide to keep from having multiple infants to care for. Meanwhile, a woman in a farming community could have a child roughly once a year. It was easier to feed them, more children meant more workers on the farm. Though many women died in childbirth, births outpaced deaths. The conditions in early farms were conducive to disease due to inadequate sanitation, and the diets offered little variety, so many early farmers died of disease. And at first, they were notably less healthy than their nomadic counterparts. It was a cruel and challenging life, but it was a significant success from an evolutionary standpoint. At the end of the day, farming families can have more children. Other theories are more linear and point to the long-term development of knowledge of cereals and seeds. As knowledge accrued, methods become more sophisticated. But of course, the problem with this theory is that it doesn't explain the time or place of the development. If this were the dynamic in play, agriculture would have developed independently in various locations at the same time. So while it is undoubtedly true that familiarity with cereals over time was essential for this development, we also want to know what triggered it specifically, when it happened, and where it happened. 
Other general theories have pointed to feasting as a spur to agriculture. They believe, and this is a fascinating one, that as villages produced better food techniques, they began to compete in terms of feasting. That would further their cachet and their reputation. So all this led to a competition for more efficient food accumulation methods. This is kind of cool. It reminds us of how great powers today compete over who will have uh, nuclear weapons or who will, people compete over who will have the latest iPhone. Uh, unfortunately, the evidence for this cool theory is not all that convincing. You see, the sort of surplus that would allow uh, feasting on a regular basis was the result of agricultural development. So it couldn't have been the cause or catalyst for the process, at least not initially. It may have helped further agriculture, but it certainly wasn't the original cause. So while feasting competition did occur, it was typical of the later pre-pottery Neolithic bee societies. And we'll talk about those societies and how they differ from the Natufians in the next episode. And of course, we have that eternal question, why the land of Israel? You see, our area was at the epicenter of this revolution. Three locations saw agricultural development around the same time in wide historical sense. First in China, agriculture took root around the Yangtze River. Meanwhile, in Mesoamerica, similar patterns began to occur. And the third center was in the Levant, or more specifically, in the land of Israel, and also in Syria and Lebanon. Um, so, the first farmers were popping up in our area around 11,000 years ago. It would only be about 2,000 years later that they emerged in China, and 2,500 years later than that in modern Mexico. Uh, no one can quite agree why the Levant came first. We already mentioned how the small dimensions of the arable land in Israel contributed to the sedentary lifestyle. But there must be more. Other areas are small and didn't produce agriculture that early. So while theories differ, they do have a few elements in common. They all identify the climactic changes uh, towards the end of the Epipaleolithic as essential catalysts in the change. The location was optimal for that prince of domesticated foods, wheat grain, while we do not associate the Levant with wheat production nowadays, we think more of the Ukraine and Russia, at least up until a few months ago, 18,000 years ago, things were different. When the last ice age ended and a round of global warming occurred, the conditions for that beloved plant to grow and spread became very good. The people in the area were soon acquainted with it, and it became an essential part of their diets. They also applied it through use even before it had been properly domesticated. So they would eat the grains, uh, as we discussed previously, turning it into a sort of paste. Now, the climate, as we already said, went through some changes, and they were far too dramatic to be coincidental to the emergence of agriculture. You see, the southern Levant emerged from the last ice age earlier than Asia Minor's mountainous areas. 14,000 years ago, the last, the last ice age receded from the south and was replaced by an era of increased precipitation. Meanwhile, the Taurus Mountains remained effectively in the ice age until about 10,000 years ago. So basically, Israel thawed out before a lot of the areas around it did. Now, sure, there's something 
deterministic about the way that we describe these processes. But of course, it wasn't preordained that the people living in the Levant would develop agriculture. It was a combination of climate, the level of technology, and culture, and possibly just dumb luck. The Natufians had cereals as part of their technological and cultural arsenal. They also were used to living in semi-permanent hamlets, which made up for a proto-homeland, and we'll discuss what that means. In addition, most of the tools they used for agriculture were improvements of existing technology, not new and groundbreaking discoveries. So they were just using what they already had in slightly different ways and taking the sorts of agriculture they were already using when they were semi-nomadic and applying it more widely. That's all. It's not that there were a bunch of groundbreaking discoveries that led to it. Um, according to their culture and according to technology, they responded to the climate crisis in a certain way. And that certain way the Natufians responded was agriculture. And other cultures responded in different ways. We can see the same thing happen now. As the world faces climate change, societies react differently depending on their culture. China looks at it one way, Denmark another, the United States another. Each one interprets the problem and its solution according to its geographic location, according to its economy, and according to its culture. Natufians should be looked at in the same way. They faced a climate crisis and they responded with the tools and the culture that they had on hand. So how exactly did the climate change? First came the Buling Alaro Interval. In that time, the fertile grasslands in the land of Israel expanded. That likely set the stage for an increase in population since it allowed us to feed more individuals, as we discussed before. The temperature at that time was comfortable, about one or two degrees Celsius lower than today. So definitely more comfortable than it was on your last vacation to Tel Aviv. And as a result, cereals and nuts were plentiful, and Natufian settlements could expand into newly forested areas, on the fringe of what used to be arable lands before. Oh, what a blissful time to be Natufian and in love, feeding your beloved pistachios underneath the oak tree. But things changed. Around 12,900 to 12,700 years ago, glacial conditions returned to the Middle East. We call this period the Younger Dryas. Our major clue that this occurred is the sudden appearance of plant macrofossils of the Dryas octopetala, a flower that grows only in cold, open, semi-Arctic environments. So the glacial conditions of the Younger Dryas were pretty severe. Luckily, they were short-lived. They lasted about 1,100 years or so. But it was a hard time for our Natufian friends. Temperatures went down by 3 to 4 degrees Celsius on average. The changes did not make any of the major food sources they had in Israel disappear, but they reduced the supply significantly. Wild emmer wheat and oaks disappeared from much of the territory. Even the hardy wild barley had a tough ride. If so, there is evidence that climate change significantly affected the region over those 1,100 years. But what did this mean to the Natufians? They clearly changed their habits, but why and how? The initial theory was that Natufians saw the Younger Dryas as an ecological crisis. 
sort of like a doomsday scenario. Weiss and Bradley referred to the Natufian turn to agriculture as the earliest well-documented example of societal collapse. So everything that they knew about how to grow food in their society, according to um, Weiss and Bradley, collapsed and they had to start again. The way they started again? Agriculture. However, not everyone agrees with this thesis. Arlene Rosina and Isabel Rivera Colazzo argue that the foragers of the Levant were far more resilient than this initial thesis would imply. They explain, societies in general don't tend to collapse. Instead, they go through cycles of response and adaptation. So the Natufians emphasized some resources at the expense of others in a bid to adapt. As they see it, no collapse was necessary to make the transition. Instead, they write, and this is a quote, Understanding the effect of climate variability on society requires a more holistic consideration of the environment, the effect of human behavior on landscapes, and the possibility of social memory and traditional knowledge enhancing the social capacity to adjust and respond to change. I love that quote. Because to me, the most intriguing part of their theory is the idea of social memory. Though we give Natufians a different name from their Kabaran predecessors, the heroes of our last episode, they continued many of the same traditional lifestyles. Adaptation techniques were passed on from generation to generation, regardless of what we call the culture. This makes a lot of sense to me. When we looked at the Epipaleolithic societies in the Levant, they had already clearly adopted some elements of farming. It was more a question of emphasizing them at the expense of foraging elements, then completely changing their culture and habits. So really we're talking a lot more about adaptation than societal collapse. And if there's one thing humans are good at, it's adapting to new and difficult situations. So who were the Natufians, these first farmers? The Natufian culture is the primary one to appear in the Levant in the late Epipaleolithic period. They remain dominant in the early Neolithic period, which is what we call the beginning of agriculture. We know quite a bit about them, at least in relation to their predecessors. We're lucky that they were quite dominant and left permanent traces. Therefore, archaeologists believe they have found upwards of 70 Natufian sites, leaving us with a good amount of detail and data. What's so striking about them is that they negotiated a time of great change and stress incredibly successfully. We find Natufian remains in a much larger swath of territory than their predecessors. Natufian sites are found throughout the Levant, from the mid Middle Euphrates to the Negev Highlands and along the Jordanian Plateau. They managed to expand their homeland from comfortable areas into arid ones. I posted a map of their expansion on both Twitter and Facebook, and it is definitely worth a look and quite impressive. Why did the Natufians prove successful? The secret, as we already mentioned, was adaptability. They had a wide assortment of technological tools, which they could use as needed in different climates and regions. They're the heirs to all the technology we talked about in the past from other cultures in the Levant. Let me quote Ofer Bar Yosef of Harvard here, where he says the Natufian culture can be recognized through its combined archaeological attributes, including 
dwellings, graves, lithic and bone industries, ground stone tools, ornamentation, and art objects, as well as the early age of its sedentary hamlets, the earliest amongst all forager societies in the Near East. Now, of course, they started off as nomadic bands, but not quite as nomadic as the Kabarins, who were already, uh, they were already transferring over into um, semi-permanent uh, dwelling-oriented societies. They soon erected and maintained home bases for their agricultural purposes. These sedentary centers included homes and silos, which they established in semi-subterranean structures. So they dug into the ground. It was usually half underground and half above the ground. Among the innovations we can find in Natufian homes were hoofed stone pestles, mortars, basins, slabs, rock rock-cut installations, terraces, enclosure walls, and yun holes, which probably served as storage bins. Though mostly known for their agricultural elements, which were indeed revolutionary, there were also several other elements in their society that harkened back to the past in meaningful ways. They reoccupied many of the caves that had been abandoned uh, and built bases and homesteads there. That's what they mean by adaptability. And that's why I find the idea of cultural memory so intriguing. Did they have a cultural tradition of how to live in caves, emanating and passed down from Paleolithic times? It is quite possible. But of course, they could have just showed up in caves and made the best of it. They were adaptable. My guess is cultural memory continued. The proliferation of home bases of this sort led to the de facto establishment of a homeland, which members of the band protected. This mode of organization is not dissimilar to those of many Native American tribes, particularly those on the northwest coast. Now, the Natufian homeland centered on the usual arable areas of the land of Israel. Uh, I included a map of that as well, alongside a map of their expansion, and that will appear on Twitter and on Facebook. The territoriality of the Natufians bred stability that allowed for advances in all sorts of culture. The most notable from the perspective of archaeologists, you know, because that's what they find, is their advanced burial culture. You see, Natufians dug graves in deserted dwellings and outside of houses. They never placed them under the floors of active homes. That probably shows a healthy respect for the dead. Another mark of respect was the gradual move from mass graves, which were the norm, to singular resting places. That occurred over time, but was a sharp transition. All of this seems to reflect a more modern attitude towards the sanctity of each life, and maybe the core of that approach in later Judaism. In many cases, limestone slabs covered the graves, thus predicting the modern gravestones. However, graves were generally filled with dirt from the dig site and often left without any stone uh, coverings. Now, culture was reflected in more than just grave sites, as much as archaeologists love those. Natufians developed a bone industry far richer than any other contemporary culture in the Levant. 
They made objects from the bones of gazelles, wolves, fallow deer, roe deer, and birds. Two of the main uses for bone tools were hide working and basketry. Hunting implements were usually based on wood for Natufians. They included hooks and gorgets for fishing, and hafts for sickle blades. However, culture could vary greatly depending on the region and the surrounding environment in which specific Natufian communities uh, made their homes. Base camps in the more arid Negev area lack some of the traits which characterize the Mediterranean base camps, especially the characteristics we tend to see as quote-unquote advanced. For example, the burial rites, building activities, art objects, and increasingly complex bone artifact industry. Natufians also took their appearance quite seriously. Bone beads and pendants were shaped by grinding and drilling. They were easily the vainest culture in Israel up to that point, and many of their objects also bear specific decorations. Natufians took advantage of their proximity to the ocean and decorated themselves with mollusks and marine shells. They used that as jewelry. Some of these shells came from as far away as the Red Sea. In one case, archaeologists found a tusk shell from the Atlantic Ocean and a freshwater bivalve from the Nile River, indicating some form of long-term trade. So aside from their uniqueness as agriculturalists, Natufians were also unique for having a recognizable homeland. They were based in the area of the Levant that was richest in cereals and were therefore familiar with their properties and how to best use them. The primary fauna in their homelands was the pistachio and the oak. Hamlets generally grew near the coast, particularly in the north around modern Haifa or near the Jordan River, and later on in the more fertile areas of the Negev Desert. Some of these hamlets were large, reaching over 1,000 square meters. What did they look like? Here's a description. Natufian base camps are characterized by semi-subterranean dwellings, pit houses. The foundations were built of stone, and the upper structure was probably brush and wood. They also often included fireplaces. Structures show evidence of repeated rebuilding. That would suggest that these hamlets were often abandoned and reoccupied based on circumstances, and that might have a lot to do with the climate change that we talked about. There's even evidence of an Atufian religion. A rounded house was found on the site of Ein Malacha. It's built quite differently from the typical Natufian abode. Standing on the shores of the Hula Marsh, it's far larger than any forager domicile. It was almost certainly the site of a sedentary dwelling, but it was probably more than that. It had a bench at the center and various artifacts and implements. There's reason to believe this was used for ritual purposes, almost certainly by elites, and quite possibly as a religious center. That's the kind of social stratification and sophistication we tend to associate with agricultural societies, and it shows that Natufians cross that frontier. How did the Natufians farm? As they became more familiar with area cereals, they began experimenting with tools to take advantage of their caloric potential. 
As a result, archaeologists have found sickle blades in some Natufian sites, like the ones we just described. They had bone handles, but usually they were crafted only from wood. Mostly the oak that's plentiful near the Mediterranean coast and was the backbone of Natufian culture and society. Tests on these implements clearly show they were used to harvest cereals. They certainly would have been far more effective for maximizing yields than the beaters and baskets Natufians used before developing sickles. The dates of the cereals found on the sickles suggest the Natufians may have been the first farmers in global history, as we already said. After harvesting, the Natufians used heavy boulder mortars, often weighing up to 150 kilograms, to process cereals. These implements were also helpful in crushing burned limestone and red ochre for construction purposes. And if you remember, we talked about the symbolic uses of red ochre in a previous episode. We have evidence that the people of this period made bread out of their cereals. The evidence includes molds for bread and hearths. They ate those along with chickpeas and olive oil. Fruits like figs and pomegranates were also a staple of their diet. So, about as Mediterranean a diet as you can imagine. Finally, we know a bit about what Natufians looked like. They were homo sapiens of slight build, with relatively long heads. They often wore skins and furs, especially in the bitter winter cold, which, as we said, got worse during the younger Dryas. Meanwhile, they used seashells for decorations, most notably in the form of their headgear. And they may have used the more rare aquatic decorations on special occasions. Now, we already mentioned that there were regional variations within the Natufian culture. The southern and northern Natufians had always been quite different. And the landscapes of the south finally created enough cultural variations that archaeologists identify a new culture in the south which started to develop around 11,000 years ago. The Harifian culture, named after Har Harif, where several relevant sites of theirs were found on the Israeli-Egyptian border, emerged as an offshoot of the Natufians. The Harifian offshoot attempted to solve the problem that the northerners solved with agriculture by moving away from the fertile areas and hunting game. In the long term, we know that that strategy did not prove sustainable, and they disappeared. But they gave it their best shot. One of the best examples of the ways that they attempted to survive in the um, less hospitable landscape is the Harif Point. Their weapons had a sharper point, especially to projectiles, that was able to penetrate prey more easily. This technique was prevalent in the Negev Desert of the South and remained popular among cultures there for a long time. The homes of the cultures in the South also became more elaborate than their um, equivalents in the North. Their technology was different because hunting in the desert areas was simply more difficult, but it was also more essential. You needed more calories from hunting since there was less flora to make up for the lack of fauna. They had some uh, resources, some vegetal resources, such as nuts, legumes, wild barley, but they couldn't make it without a stable supply of the regional meat, such as ibex, gazelle, and rabbits. So, the Harifians over time divided into two different groups. One dominated the western Negev and spread into Sinai. 
The other remained in the eastern and central Negev. They reached the southern parts of the Judean desert at their peaks as well. Both groups had strong ties to other cultures in the Red Sea and traded seashells and other commodities with them. However, you can see a significant difference in the shells they used for decorations than the ones used by the Natufians. They mostly brought them from the Red Sea and not the Mediterranean. Um, at their peak, the Harifians controlled at least 8,000 square kilometers and possibly a great deal more. Some scholars, most notably Eurus um, Zarins, believe that the Harifians are the forefathers of the nomadic pastoralists that spread the Semitic language group throughout the Levant. So it's quite possible these were the first bearers of the language group that later on produced Aramaic and Hebrew. However, they crashed and burned pretty quickly by historical standards. The Harifian era only lasted about 300 years. Despite their increased technological capabilities, the Harifians could not deal with the increased aridity in the Negev that was the result of the Younger Dryas. Honestly, they never had a chance. Due to increased aridity, the area remained essentially uninhabited for another thousand years before living there was attempted again successfully. As Natufians became more sedentary, cultural changes occurred amongst them. Two elements are fascinating from a sociological perspective. First, the Natufians seem to have developed several different regionally-based identities. We see enough variation within micro-regions to start thinking of a certain amount of regional identity and competition. We don't know much about it, but implements and worship took on different characteristics in a manner that seems organized, intentional, and regional. Second, the ritualistic focus of the culture begins to move towards the representation of animals. Some of the more interesting ones include a figurine of an owl and a dog head on the other side. Others still combine human figures and animals. This is not dissimilar to ancient Egyptian imagery. These animal-oriented figurines were far more common than ones representing humans alone. However, some of those have been found as well. Why did these cultural changes occur? The leading theory is that large populations overexploited resources, creating two problems. One problem was rivalry between bands over resources. The other was how to divide wealth and food within each band. We see some signs of this stress. There's more territorially oriented artwork, as seen in burial rituals. There's a more stratified social system, even what we would today call a class system. And finally, towards the end, a tragically high mortality for children. If we stop and think about what this means, it's remarkable. Tensions between security and internal class politics have been a constant element in human societies. Elites have always used external threats to control socio-economically weaker classes, and lower classes have always resented their superiors. So on a basic level, our current political conflicts seem like an inseparable part of our existence. Fighting against enemies, tension between classes are there from the very beginning of sedentary lifestyle. While the newly sedentary societies created a good deal of strife, 
they also transformed our patterns of existence in meaningful ways. Over time, the Natufians increased investment in building dwellings, in building storage facilities, and cultivating fields. Therefore, even when the climate shifted and the environmental catalysts for sedentary life changed, their lifestyle and reliance on cereals withstood changing circumstances. Thus, the emergence of the Natufian was a point of no return for the Levant and for humanity. The new era the Middle East entered into is known as the Neolithic one. Neolithic means New Stone Age. While the Natufians heralded this new era, their culture ultimately did not survive the transition. But based on the advances of the Natufians, Neolithic societies emerged in the area. Our knowledge of these cultures centers around one significant site what would later become the city of Jericho. But the secret of that city and its legendary walls will have to await the next episode. Before we finish, I want to thank all of you for your support. This is a brand new podcast, and we already have 600 downloads, and it gets more every day. I was not expecting that so early. So thank you. The podcast now also has an email account. Yep, we're getting professional and everything. So if you have questions or comments, email me at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Also, it would be great if those of you who like the podcast could rate it on Apple Podcasts or um, rate it on Spotify. On Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a written review. So leave one if it's good. If not, you know, take your time. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and see you next time on the History of the Land of Israel podcast.